0: Uh, Today, I want to share with you a message that I've entitled, Shame, Blame, and Game. Now, for many years, if you are ever in the preaching ministry or in the teaching ministry, or if you go to a homiletics course or anything along those lines, or if you've been in part of any Bible study from very early on, you might have heard this phrase, that your job as somebody who is studying the Bible or teaching the Bible, you're supposed to ensure that you have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And the idea and the concept behind that is to ensure that whatever it is that you're reading in the Word of God in the Bible is also connected deeply with what's happening in current events. Well, we don't read newspapers anymore, so maybe it's better off to say that there's a Bible in one hand and an iPad in the other, Or maybe it's just an iPad because now the Bible's on the iPad, I don't know. But this has struck very true to me. And over the years, uh, my thinking about this has evolved. It used to be that I needed the, the newspaper in my hand because I needed to interpret what was happening in the Bible. And what was happening in current events, and you would match up all sorts of, uh, especially kind of the end times things, that for those of you who have heard of that, where you start to take current events, and you match it up with all the prophecies in the Bible, and you start to put all those pieces together, uh, you know, like Gorbachev had the, you know, birthmark, that was clearly the sign of the beast, um, so that was something that you needed to do. Uh, many years ago, there were the barcodes, you know, the uh, ISBN number barcodes on the back of all your products, you know, when that hit the market, uh, I, I heard, I read this thing where the first two lines and the second two lines and the third two lines actually is 666, and so that was the sign of the beast, so you couldn't purchase anything. All those, all those kinds of things were going around. Well, recently, my thinking about that has evolved. And what I've come to understand now with this particular phrase is what is happening in the scriptures describes something so profoundly, deeply human to every single one of our experiences that you can see it reflected in the various things that are happening around the world. So it's not so much about making things match up prophecy for prophecy, but it's about taking a look at what the world is starting to recognize about how humanity works and what's actually working and living out in this world and starting to see that the Bible has been speaking to that for many, many, many years. And so that's part of what this message is going to be. I'd like to start with the Genesis story and kind of set a framework here. In the beginning, you see the Genesis 1 and 2 creation story, but then it moves into chapter 3. Now, chapter 3, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or of the knowledge of good and bad, as I talked about several weeks ago. And their eyes were opened, and they realized that they were naked. Now, if you want some deeper teaching on that specific piece, I want to refer you back to the teachings that we had several weeks ago on that. But they realized that they are naked. After this realization, there's a second thing that happens. They recognize in their nakedness that something's wrong. And when God comes to them and says, there's something wrong here, what do they instantly do? They blame. This woman that you put here, she's the one. And the woman says, no, the serpent, by the way, that you created... This is the problem that happens here. And then the third thing that happens in this narrative is that they make leaves and they hide from God. They're trying to basically get away from the very presence of who God is. Now, this framework for me, I've been thinking about this for many years. It sounds like what is happening and what is set up in this Genesis 3 story is that there's an initial sense of shame that comes as a result of disobedience, that comes as a result of sin, that comes as a result of not doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing. As a result of that shame, because there's something deeply wounded here, whenever there's responsibility to be had, I cannot take that responsibility. I must push that responsibility out to somebody else, and we begin to blame. And as a result of these two things, because of the shame that I feel and because of the blame that I am doing now with other people and other things around me, I start to game every single system around me. Does this sound familiar? Are you ready? Buckle in. Shame, blame, and game. This, to me, I think has highlighted something that I have started to see in my own personal life, in the life of teenagers that I counsel, in the life of couples that Pastor Danielle and I counsel, in the life of business partners and relationships. This is something that I've started to witness and started to see and start to pull together all these pieces and wonder. I wonder if something really deeply, profoundly human is going on here that the Bible has been talking about and has been trying to address for many years. And let's see, hopefully, prayerfully, God willing, as a result of your being here, My prayer is that God would speak to you and minister to this very deep wound and hurt that we all carry around with us. That I'm titling just with three words shame, blame, and game. What is shame? Shame is the idea that you are not. Worthy of love. It's the kind of feeling that you get when somebody compliments you or loves you or shares affection with you and you reject it or you can't handle it. Or it's the perception that you have of yourself that you are simply not lovable. Shame is the idea that you are at wrong. And it's not just your behavior, that would be guilt. Guilt is the behavior that you've done which is wrong. Shame is you yourself are wrong. You yourself are bad. Your very identity, the very core essence of who you are is faltered, is sinful. So shame is that sense. And underneath that heading, I have put the phrase, there's an internal insecurity. Many, many years ago, I heard a pastor say that one, perhaps the deepest problem with all of humanity is that every single one of us is deeply insecure. Every single one of us is deeply insecure, And over time and over the years, I've found that to be true in my own life and in the life of people that I've run into. There's something wounded deep within each and every one of us, for those of us who have been hurt. And it has a deep effect on how we see ourselves and our identities. Now, if that's the case, if we carry around this shame, this hurt, this sense that I am not worthy of love, that I am unlovable, that my very core identity is not worthy of that love or acceptance, and it, and it brings to us a deep sense of insecurity, then the next thing that follows naturally is if something is wrong, if something is out of whack, if there's a dysfunction that exists in my life, Because I'm unworthy of love, because I'm so deeply wounded, because I'm so hurt, the only way that I can think about a solution to the problem is to outsource the responsibility. And to say that something else or someone else is responsible. It's her fault. It's his fault. You were the one who put this woman here with me. You were the one who created the serpent. You were the one. It's clearly not me. It has to be you. That comes from a place of deep wound, deep hurt, deep deep shame. And we begin to blame. We begin to point fingers. And all of you in this room have done this at one particular point. Something has hurt you. Something has gone wrong. Something has devastated you. Something has tapped into that deep wound. And instead of working through whatever is is going on here, you outsource and say, well, clearly those people, those people, because they're clearly the problem. So we begin to instantly blame. And as a result of this blame, as we, as we outsource responsibility, as we push it to other people and other systems, well, it's clearly this is that, this is the problem, that's the problem, I'm not the problem, that's the problem, then the only option that we have in order to live and to work in this world is to live dysfunctionally, to begin to manipulate the people and the things and the systems around us to protect ourselves, to make sure that we Do things that are going to undermine, that we hide things, that we skirt around things. And then we develop these dysfunctional relationships. Shame, I do not feel worthy of love. Blame, because my heart has been so damaged and so hurt. Because there's this wound that I cannot carry. There's no space or foundation in my heart to take responsibility for anything. I have to push it out away. And so, as I push it out away to these other people, then if they're the problem, then they're the ones that I'm going to fix. Or they're the ones I'm going to keep at a distance. They're the ones that I'm going to ensure don't ever come close to me ever again. Shame, blame, and game. By the way, I see this play out in almost every aspect of life. I see this play out in religion. And instead of taking care of the deep wound or the hurt or the insecurity or the identity, the place that we need to feel deeply connected to God, what do we do we do with religion? The very first thing, behavioral modification. We start with the game. We start with, you need to stop doing or you need to begin doing. Your behavior is what's the problem. I see this play out in schooling and in education where a student is not necessarily doing so well. So you, instead of addressing maybe the hurt or the pain or the struggle or that deep sense that I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not capable enough, I don't have what it takes. Instead of addressing that, you categorize them in a place that says, you're right, you don't have what it takes and so we're gonna put you in this kind of a system or we're going to drug you or we're going to put you in this kind of a program. Now. I'm not suggesting that all of those things are bad. I'm suggesting that I've seen this play out in these areas. I've seen this play out in parenting, especially recently in my own personal life. (laughs) Oh, wait a second. I'm just trying to stop this kind of behavior from happening. Uh, As children get older, I think I've said this before from this pulpit, that as children get older and they start playing in sports, one of the phrases that I heard many years ago was when you're cheering for your son or your daughter out on the sports field, are you cheering Are you cheering for their first name or are you cheering for their last name? Are you cheering because they themselves have a deep sense of identity and worth that you want them to blossom and flourish in? Or are you cheering because as they succeed, that makes you look good as a parent? Because you, So you start to play the game. And of course, we see this in relationships where especially when people come together and they're trying to meld two hearts as one, and you're trying to figure out how these relationships work together, how your life and my life can come together and coalesce into form something of a beautiful relationship. I bring deep wounds, deep hurts, deep pains. And if something's wrong in the relationship, well, he said, well, she said, do you know what he does? Well, do you know what she does? And we instantly play the blame game. And then we start to manipulate. Or we start to be passive-aggressive. Or we start to play the silent game. By the way, again, just another disclaimer. I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to myself as well. This is something that I've seen play out. Why does this happen? Well, Brene Brown, many of you probably have heard her before. She's given one of the most... A popular TED Talks, and she's written this book, Daring Greatly. She writes, amongst many things that could be applied to this particular idea, because true belonging only happens when we present our authentic and perfect selves to the world. Our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. Because we don't have this sense of connectedness and self-acceptance and worthiness and love in our own hearts and our own souls, then we disconnect ourselves from other people. So we start to see this play out in every single relationship that we have. I see this played out in leadership circles. Um, Jim Collins wrote a book many years ago entitled Good to Great, and one of the concepts that he has for level five leaders, leaders that are really on top of their game, are leaders that have a really good relationship with what he calls the window in the mirror. It works like this. When something is wrong in the organization, do you look out the window and say, it's those people, the blame game? Or do you look in the mirror and say, what am I doing that's causing the dysfunction to happen, that's the addressing that I'm secure in my own identity, my own worth as a CEO, in my own worth and value as a leader, that I can take responsibility for something and do something that can help the organization. But if we have leaders and people in positions of power that feel deeply the shame, this unworthiness, this this insecurity about my position, then you're going to look immediately out the window and say, it's got to be those people because it clearly can't be me. I'm not in an emotional place where I can take the responsibility. I am deeply insecure. I just recently finished this book by Gregory Boyd, Father Gregory Boyd, or Father G as he's known on the street. He works with gang members down in Los Angeles, and I cannot commend this book strong enough to you. It's a story, it's a collection of stories that he has had with gang members, and he runs Homeboy Industries. Don't you love it? Homeboy Industries. And it's one of the largest gang rehabilitation programs. In fact, the largest gang rehabilitation program in the nation. Phenomenal work. And he writes eloquently about this idea that people in gangs or people who have to act out the gaming side of things, the the game side, do so because they feel absolutely worthless. Although he uses much more colorful language than that. He writes behold the one beholding you and smiling it is precisely because we have such an overactive disapproval gland ourselves that we tend to create god in our own image it is truly hard for us to see that the see the truth that disapproval does not seem to be part of god's dna god is just too busy loving us to have any time left for disappointment And so what I'd like to suggest to you at the beginning of this journey that we are all going to be on regarding shame, blame, and game, is we need to start recognizing that this exists and then secondly, begin to heal, but not in the backward way. The backward way says this, you know what we need to do? We need to fix the behavior. We need to incarcerate. We need to punish. We need to have consequences. We need to make sure people know what's right and what's wrong. So we try to fix the game. I call that law enforcement. Law enforcement is good. Just want to clarify. But that's how we start. As a result of hopefully being punished, then we get into therapy and try to fix our minds and fix... Don't blame other people. Blame yourself. Take responsibility for yourself if we can get the corrective behavior. And then hopefully after that, then there will be this wonderful transformation of your heart and your soul. And what I love about Gregory Boyd and the work of Brene Brown and the scriptures of which I'm going to share with you is I think that this way of going about our healing process, this way of going about our identity process, this way of going about the process of love is absolutely backwards that what we need to do and what I think the scriptures are constantly teaching us is that we don't start with behavior modification. We don't try to first fix the game, then to fix the blame, only to hope that this internal shame piece gets fixed. No, I think what is happening and what God is crying out desperately for each and every one of us is that we start by healing our image of ourselves and healing our image of God. Start there. Start by believing that you are worthy. Start by accepting love. Start by feeling more secure in who God has created you to be. And if you can start there, then everything else will take care of itself. I see this idea again through these words. Now, take a look at these words. You will hear these words, repentance, redemption, community. Shalom. And because the impulse within us, especially for those of us who've been in religious circles or in Christian circles for a long time, is to see repentance as what? Behavior modification. Stop doing what you're doing. Your way of behaving, your way of acting is wrong. You need to stop doing that. Redemption is also a very similar idea. You are such a poor behaved person or you are a person that is clearly not within God's purview God's acceptance that you need to change. You need to be redeemed from that. And community is about how you need to invest yourselves into the people and the lives of which you're in. I think sometimes when we see these words and we get into religious circles and we hear about Christianity, when we hear about Jesus, we hear about God's love, it's the same thing. We start with the behavior. We start with the way that we are dysfunctional. We start there. But if we can reverse that again... I think you can start to see these words in new light. The word repentance just simply means to return. It doesn't mean just to stop doing what you're doing. It means that. But deep at its core, it means return. In other words, return to your core identity, who you are, that God has created you. Don't return to Genesis chapter 3. Return to Genesis 1. You are created in the image and likeness of God. That is your identity, your security. And because you are created in God's image, you are worthy of all of his love. Redemption is a trading in, a a way of seeing yourself for the way that God sees you. Community is now the place. The church is now the place or the people through which you find acceptance and love. And when you fail the community, when the community comes around you and says, but you are still loved. You don't understand your behavior, your poor actions, your dysfunction is not what's going to kick you out. You're here. You are loved. You are accepted. And shalom is all about wholeness. And so I think what God is trying to share with us and trying to minister to us into the work that I think we all need to do is to start to see that God's love, his divine love, is trying to radically transform Not just the game, not just the blame, but radically transform our shame. Belden Lane, a a theologian, writes this, Divine love is incessantly restless until it turns all woundedness into health, all deformity into beauty, and all embarrassment into laughter. I love that quote. Would divine love do that for you? Would divine love do that for me? Would divine love do that for our community? Would divine love do that for your business? Would divine love do that for your church, for your school, for your relationship, for your parents, for your children? Would divine love transform all of that? What does God do in the garden back here? Genesis 3, they realized that they were naked. The woman, put you, the woman you put here, the serpent you put here, so there's the blame. And then they make leaves and they hide. They try to game God. And I love what God does instantly, immediately in that moment because he reverses it. Where are you? I'm trying to game you. I'm trying to hide. I thought if I just you know, hid behind these fig leaves, you know, it, would, it would work because you're, you're, you're God and that is like your kryptonite fig leaves. And God says, where are you? What are you doing? And it's that compassionate. Why aren't you here? Intimate with me. Connected with me. Why isn't your identity solely, deeply, intimately connected with who I say you are? Who told you you were naked? Why are you blaming this and that? Who told you this? Where did that come from? And then I love this last piece. He covered their nakedness. And that's what I love so much about this story. When God enters in, he reverses that, and he says, and and he ends up covering over their shame. That word cover is the word atonement, to cover over, to protect, to guard. And so throughout the rest of the scriptures, what I would suggest to you, as we take a look at these stories. And as you read through your Bible and read through these stories, there are moments when there's Torah, there's teaching, there's commandments. There needs to be behavior modification. However, there's deep sense of community and acceptance. There's this sense that the people that you are outsourcing your responsibility to are actually the people that will bring you healing and hope and restoration and intimacy. Why? Because he's creating all of us brand new again that your life in this moment through Christ, your life in this moment through God's love can be radically transformed and restored to the person of who you were originally created to be. I've asked Ryan and uh, the team to come up and just play some music over this next section. What I'd like to do is read through some quotes and passages in scriptures. And as we do so, what I'd love to set in this moment, in this space... Is a time and a place, and for your heart and your soul, including my own, to just rest and say, okay, God, do you know me? Is my heart and my soul connected to you? Can I hear from you that there is something wounding in my soul that is causing me to behave in such aberrant ways? And instead of trying to fix that, what I really want to attend to, God, is that you deeply and you passionately love me and that you care for my soul so much that you want me to feel whole and healed. And God is saying to you. I want you to feel worthy of the love that I am giving you. You are worthy of it. Let's start with Psalm 139 because I start I see this happening. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Do you hear that? This is too much for me. You're knowing me. And again, biblical knowledge. I know you. I know who you are. You are precious. You are loved. You are deeply worthy. And I care so much. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. There is no place you can go where God's love and His care and His intimacy is not. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is his light to you. God, I want to see your light. I want to receive that light into my soul, into my, the depths of my being. I want to feel once again what it's like to have security and peace and worthiness and love. That's where I want to be. Why? Because you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That's who I am. That's my identity. That's the core sense of how I see myself. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And then I love this. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, Not the thoughts that you have of yourself because the thoughts that you have of yourself are deprecating. The thoughts that you have of yourself are diminishing. The thoughts that you have of yourself are negative. That you aren't worthy. That you are unloved. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. You think of me. You care about me. You hold me. You find me precious and worthy. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. And I love this because the blame in the game happened right here. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. See, even there, it's like ah, them away from me. You who are bloodthirsty, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. I do not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. <laughs> I count them my enemies. Pause. Search me, God. You know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. I'm playing the blame game. I'm playing the gaming game. You know that. God, see if there is any of that offensive way within me. Lead me and guide me in the way of everlasting. Restore unto me that soul. Brendan Manning writes this. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. Every other identity that you have, every other sense of how you see yourself is an illusion. The Christ within, who is our hope of glory, is not a matter of theological debate or philosophical speculation He is not a hobby, a part-time project, a good theme for a book or a last resort when all human effort fails. He is our life, the most real fact about us. He is the power and wisdom of God dwelling within us. Is that you? Now... When you read things like this, there's something within you that immediately goes, well, that can't be me. That might be somebody else. That might be Brendan Manning. That might be these great authors. That might be those biblical stories. That's my neighbor. That's this holy person. That's the pastor. But that's not me. No, this is you. This is me. This is all of us. I see this play out once again where God is wanting to restore each and every one of us where God is wanting to restore each and every one of us first John three one see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are again speaking to identity ephesians three fourteen through nineteen That you may be filled to the measures, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Do you hear the love? And if God is pouring out that love upon you, guess what? That means He is saying, because He's God, you are worthy of that love, because He created you that way. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ, Jesus, the law, Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Feel and hear the sense of God's love pouring out through his scriptures. Through these letters, but while God de- but God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In economic terms, you might want to put it this way: God paid the greatest cost because we are of greatest worth. Hear this, feel this, know this. And if you're feeling any shame that you aren't worthy, that hurt that pain that rises up and wells up within you whenever a trigger happens in your life. Remember this, of who you are, your identity. I see this deeply through these passages in the stories of Matthew. There's a treasure, a treasure. Have you ever called yourself a treasure? Have you ever heard that from God himself? Have you heard that from somebody you know? that you are a treasure. And you know what this crazy person did. He sells everything and goes to buy a field. But what he knows, and maybe what the field owner doesn't know, is in that field is a treasure of unlimitless worth and value. Like It's like a merchant looking for fine pearls, and when he finds one of great value, he sells everything and buys that I I see this in the prodigal son, which really should be called the prodigal father. Prodigal means lavish and unreasonable because what the father does in this story is he pours out unreasonable and lavish love on a son who, by the way, blamed and gamed. And he didn't even have the wherewithal to recognize his shame when he comes home. But the father pours out his love pours out his acceptance, pours out his welcome home. You are my son. That is who you are. I see this in the story of the lost sheep. I'm going to leave the 99 and go and look for that one. Why? Because that one is that valuable and that precious. We all have a tendency. All of us, because of wounds and hurts, damage that has been done, carry around with us, A sense that we are not worthy of love, that we are not connected to others, that we are not loved, and we are completely unlovable. And what God does in these stories throughout Genesis all the way through Revelation is to cry out once again, you are deeply loved, and I'm pulling you, calling you, stretching, reaching for you back. I'll end with a quote from Father G., Sometime back at the turn of the century during a general election, some pundit tried to compare and contrast Bill Clinton, Al Gore, and George W. Bush. He said, Bill Clinton walks into a room and wants everybody in the room to like him. Al Gore walks into a room and wants everyone to think he's right. W. walks into a room and wants the, ro- wants the room to know he's in charge. And we all feel all of these at one time or another because they are fear-based responses. And it's hard to get out from under that dread. Have you ever felt that dread? Our frightened selves want only for the gathered to like us, to agree with us, or to be intimidated by us. That's the gaming. That's the games that we play. And I love this. I suppose Jesus walks into a room and loves what he finds there. Delights in it, in fact. Maybe he even makes a beeline to the outcasts and chooses in them to go where love has not yet arrived. And I love this last line. His ways are not our ways, but they certainly could be. Could it possibly be that to worship God, to honor him, to gather together as a church, is not to be distant from this God and to honor and to venerate him as somewhere out there, but as to bring him closer and closer to our hearts and our souls so that the way that he loves, the way that he sees, the way that he accepts, the way that he connects, the way that he brings intimacy and worth and value to this world is the same that we all need to experience. And he brings that to you, he brings that to me, and then we bring that to each other. So in this matrix of shame and blame and game, I'm hoping, I'm praying, desperately pleading with God to heal us. And then we can shatter all of those things. And to remind ourselves because of God's gospel, his good news, because of who he is, because of Christ's love, because of his sacrifice, because of every story and parable that he tells, because of every precept and teaching that we see in these scriptures, because of every kind word and acceptance of love that this community shows to each other, we can say, I am enough. I don't have to play the game. I don't have to be something else. I don't have to stretch beyond who I am. I am enough. I, God has made me this way. And therefore, I can love and be loved and be responsible for this world and begin to feed into this world the shalom and the peace and the healing and the redemption and the rescue that God has called each and every one of us. <clears throat> and then we can choose once again to connect with one another and be compassionate towards one another, and to see that when we see somebody else gaming the system, maybe instead of going directly to behavioral management and law enforcement, we jump right to, oh, friend, brother, sister, don't you know how deeply loved you are? Don't you know how deeply loved you are and worthy of that love? I'm going to ask Ryan to Ryan and Deanne to lead us in this song and as we sing my prayer is that God's love and his grace just flood your heart so you can sing along listen God do your thing in this room do your thing in our hearts do your thing in our souls As Father G said, your ways are not our ways, but God, we are praying that they do become our ways. Love us. Well, wait a second, God, you already do love us. Help us to receive open-handed, open-hearted, this tremendous love that you have. And it is my prayer that as we receive this love that you have given to us, that we will begin to live into this world functionally, lovingly, redemptively, and that way it would bring healing to all of our relationships.
1: us, how He loves us so.